Fathers Who Bother is made possible in part by the contributions of listeners like you. To support Fathers Who Bother, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash fathers who bother and become a monthly subscriber today. On the next episode of Fathers Who Bother, DJ poet and producer Rich Medina shares how becoming a father changed his hustle, how nightlife prepared him for fatherhood and more. They say DJs save lives and my next guest has certainly saved a night or three of mine in my lifetime. The Philly, by way of NJ artist, is a DJ, producer, poet, lecturer, and nightlife legend. If you've ever experienced Little Ricky's Rib Shack at APT, open at Santos Party House, or Jumpin' Funk, you may still be in orbit because he got you so high. If you don't have his 2005 album, Connecting the Dots in Your Rotation, fix that as soon as you are done listening to this podcast. If you haven't caught him spinning as a member of the Originals, make sh- make that a priority when the world opens back up. Until then, bookmark his Twitch, Rich Medina Music, and treat yourself to one of his many sets. Today, we are going to talk about his favorite gig, being a dad. Please welcome Rich Medina to the podcast. Peace, brother. How you doing? <laughs> What's up, man? Great. Yo, this this is such a high note for me, man, because I wasn't kidding in that intro. APT, brother. APT. The 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 parties you used to put down in there, man. Life changing. It was a real blessing. That 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 ten years in the meatpacking district was was something else, you know. It was another another notch in the New York City nightlife belt, you know. I'm really thankful to be a part of that. Yo, man, and 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 then now I think the last time I got to see you spin was in Central Park with um, the oh, originals okay. last, not this past summer. Oh, that was amazing. The, this last summer. summer with the originals, I think we rocked twice last summer. Yeah, that's page incredible both times. I was out there in that park and whew, it, it, it's church, man. It's really a yeah, the park was electric that night, man. For sure. <laughs> So today, we're going to have a cool conversation about your other gig, being a dad. So um, yep. we're going to start with my, my favorite first question. When did you first find out that you were going to be a dad? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I first found out I was going to become a father when I told Tracy, my son's mother, from an international call from London to stop taking her birth control. And I swear I could almost hear her hand reach into her purse and sling them out the car window before we even got off the damn phone. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was at that moment that I knew for sure it was about to happen because she had been asking me about it I don't even say it that like that. We have been discussing it. She was ready and raring to go before I was. And um, yeah, I knew I was going to be a dad the day that I told her I, I'm, I'm ready now. And wow. soon as I got home, I think soon as I got off the plane from Europe, I think he might have been conceived like within the first 72 hours of me. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it's people don't think you remember the moment of conception, but without giving too much detail, I remember the exact moment my son was conceived. Really? I yes, I absolutely know the circumstances and everything. I'm like, yep, I know when it happened. So I believe that a hundred percent. Did you feel ready though? Like, were you like, yeah, I'm- I was because I mean, she had been kind of egging me on about it she wasn't being pushy or negative it wasn't a problem she was just ready and i wasn't quite there so right. she had her way of of keeping the point in front of me and it came a point where i got the point you know now it, was, it wasn't it was never a question of anything pertaining to her or mm-hmm. her wherewithal as a as a mother it was it was definitely all about me trying to figure out who i am and where i am before i deem myself worthy to look after another person you know to look after another human being in that way where were you in your career at this time like give us a paint us a picture about what was going on in the world of rich medina at this time uh man i was 38 when my son was born uh he was born in january 2008 um 
this was the real peak of what was happening at APT. This was a, a different peak with regard to what I was doing with Q-Tip at Santos Party House. Uh, I was getting phone calls from people that would pass me like ships in the night years prior, not out of anything negative. They just didn't have any grounds to see me the way they began to see me. I, I earned it. So it was a crazy time for me. Uh, Tracy was working with me. She, Tracy was doing the door for me at mm -hmm. APT at the time. Well, by that, by then she had kind of begun to, to branch off into her own things, but mm -hmm. yeah, things were going crazy for me at the time that Kamal was, was conceived and when he was born. It was, um, it was a really fruitful time in my career, in my life, uh, as a man, as an artist. It was a really, really fruitful time for me. So with all that going on, did impending fatherhood change the way you moved? Did you have less time? Did you travel less, travel more because you're trying to save up for when he came? Like how did it, how did it change you or impact you as an artist? Oh yeah, as an artist, man. I mean, you know, it's, it's the widest of the creative tangents that you could possibly embark on, you know, and that's either going to bury you in the, the, the muck of getting stuck when you, you're worried about what's to come and you, you can't be creative because of that. In other senses, it can light you up. And if you're a writer, the ink is just pouring out of your arm. Or if you're a producer, the drums are just falling out of you. Or if you're a DJ, you just have this boundless, uh, I don't know, endurance or, or ability to, to be familiar and try new things in a different way because you're about to be in some new things. So it changed everything. It changed how I operate completely as a, as a person. Some things took longer to catch up, but uh, yeah, it changed me completely. Mr. Walt told me that it changed the way he went digging for records because Easy Moby had told him that the records had a lot of dust and germs and what have you. Mm -hmm. And he stopped going to certain places to dig because he knew he didn't want to bring it back home to his kid. Wow. That's <laughs> Did you have any like behavioral changes like that? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it would, I, I don't like to think that I've never been a, a dirty person, but I was, I was washing my hands 350 times a day because of the, the game, because of what you were saying to the point that Mr. Walt was making, you know, these things get a lot of, you know, it's a lot of energy tied to them. It's a lot of physical dirt and dust and grime, a lot of energy, depending on if it's brand new or if it's a used record or an older record. It's carrying all the energies from the, the, the people who had it before you, the circumstances that it was in before it came into your hands, you know, all those variables are always in play, you know, those vibrations and frequencies are real. And I began, I, I would say I began getting rid of records that I felt like the content wasn't really speaking to who I am, mm. you know? So I like an ego trip rapper, you know? I'm the biggest Cool G rap fan on, on earth. Just Ice, all the OG, tough guys I'll knock your ass out type of MCs like that's I love that chamber right when it's poetic right things that was speaking that vocabulary that weren't poetic hmm. or, or sonically uh, or literary hmm. began to be much 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 less appealing to it wow so his impending he's coming Mm -hmm. Did you find out he was going to, did you find out if he was going to be a boy ahead of time or? No, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't find out. We didn't do a gender reveal. We didn't find out. We wanted to just go old conventional, you know, and just right. see what God gave us. You know, we had about 793 million names for each of them either way. <laughs> so we were good money on the practicality, you know what I mean? <laughs> what was the baby, what was the baby name choosing exercise like for you? Our baby name choosing exercise consisted of 
probably monthly conversations throughout the entire pregnancy and a lot of writing, a lot of one notebook. I believe I still have that notebook, as a matter of fact. And we just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote names, names I like, names I like, names I like. Not necessarily trying to make it like this cutesy couple thing. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that has its place if, if that's yeah. the decision that you make. It was like, write down a bunch of names that appeal to you. And I'll do the same. And we just tossed it back and forth for the entire pregnancy. And uh, we eventually landed on Kamal. When um, did you land on Kamal after he was born? Or was it like you looked at, you looked at him and said, you are Kamal? Or <laughs> <laughs> The Roots moment? I had a uh, right, 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 right. <laughs> James Evans and Roots moment? <laughs> um, no, <nah>, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have that. It was, it was, you know, the name just, the name Kamal was always a, a beautiful name to me. Um, the name Nasir was always a beautiful name to me. Just sonically, I always enjoyed the feeling of those names my whole life. And then the the different men and different different leaders and people who have carried those names from MCs we know through the ages and um, you know, the real Sanskrit meaning of those names and it just rolled off the tongue. And as soon as I said it, she agreed it like almost immediately. And it was, it was really smooth. Okay. So you got him home. What was the learning curve like for you? Um, with this newborn human being? <laughs> well, staying up late at night was never really an issue just because of the lifestyle. You know, I'm already up till five in the morning. The issue was coming home at five in the morning and the baby's had his mom up most of the night because he's not settling in the way we want him to, as if the way we want him to fucking matters <laughs> told me shit <laughs> what you want a baby gonna do what that baby gonna do and right. it's gonna some of that is gonna be conditional on the the environment that you set and some of that is gonna be set on who that little person is and what their disposition is as they deal with trying to explain to you that they just took a shit on themselves and it feels disgusting <laughs> so you come home at six in the morning and you know, she's happily not rested, but you know, it's pass off time. So I had to learn a whole different chamber of uh, energy monitoring, mm. you know, uh, working in my business, you're in the bars all the time. You're in clubs all the time. People want to buy you a drink. People want to toast. Sometimes a drink or two just turns the white noise down and helps you focus. Mm. And you don't really realize that you're, how deep you are in that game until you have a very fragile being in front of you that mm. is dependent on your lucidity. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. So, you know, the art of moderation, the art of, of pace, you know, looking at the re-up in a whole different way. You know, mm. more often than not, we only hear that in hustler's terms. But as a hustler, not in the drug game, but as a hustler, you know, sometimes you do spend a little bit of the re-up. Mm. You gotta get out of that game. Cause mm. you know, the rainy day money means a whole different thing. Yeah. So it was like, just, you know, <clears throat> it's like a snake shedding his skin, man. You just, some of it is, is you know, resolutions I'm, I'm a dad now and i'm gonna i'm gonna do abc and then i'm gonna do t-h-g-y and i'm gonna pull it over to the s you know what i'm saying like all these these hoops that we put ourselves through and you really just kind of gotta let the environment and the child tell you what you're supposed to do in a lot mm. of instances at least in my experience so DJs make better diaper changes? Is that <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, a little ambidexterity don't hurt. 
<laughs> they ain't gonna stop you from getting that white shirt sprayed up, but <laughs> a little ambidexterity could get you through that situation a little faster for sure. <laughs> you know how to like maybe cover. Yeah, you know, not to hold something and hold the mix. You know, it's like holding a long mix. You know, sliding <laughs> up and down the pitch control, and you you opening and closing faders at the same time. Yeah, I think it applies. Oh my god! So what was <laughs> what was fatherhood like for you? Like, what did you feel about it as a as a, a concept? Man, you know. The responsibility of a human being that comes from you and your union with a woman is, it's the biggest job and the biggest responsibility in the world. You know, fatherhood. I, you know, I didn't have much of a relationship with my father until I was 23. Oh. You know, so you have those longings the things that, you know, I want to give them what I didn't have, that whole, all that, the romance that we all have with that vocabulary. And, uh, you know, it's an institution, you know, I didn't have the heaviest of relationships with my father growing up, but my grandfather, my mother's father, he's a cornerstone in our community. You know, yeah. he demanded respect from any men that came in his circumference just by his disposition, his nature, his work ethic, all the things that made him who he was. And thankfully, because of that, I had a bunch of surrogate fathers around me, you know, academically, athletically, socially, artistically. I was always chasing behind somebody that was five to 15 years older than me. Mm. So I had an affinity myself towards being coached, you know, being groomed and how a grown man will break you off bits and pieces of information until you're ready for the whole plate. You know, other days you might throw your ass in the deep end of the water or the pool <laughs> and they right there, everybody's there. We got the swimming muscles and all that. But some days you get pushed in the deep end. But the consistent, the sustainable method is bits and pieces. So that the person that's absorbing the bits and pieces has the option to make their own decisions about what they're learning. You know, if you overwhelm somebody with data, the only decision is how do I get out from under this data, right? But if you give them a piece, you can open up curiosities and, and dialogue that is going to help that person make decisions that are going to be really helpful for themselves and the people around them later in life. So I've always viewed fatherhood with a very, very, very serious eye, um, partially because of growing up without my biological dad directly in my life, and partially just because Despite that, I was blessed with the opportunity to eventually become his friend and learn the man he was. And when he passed, he passed with the two of us at peace with each other, which was enormous. And, you know, it was like in the five years that we were able to become friends, that was 23 years where the upbringing compressed, you know, because some of the work that he missed out on, my mom and all those surrogate dads around me did a hell of a job. So I was able to meet him where he needed to be met. And the first time we had a, a real conversation, I mean, it was 12 hours of probably the most intellectually sound conversation I've ever had. What what facilitated that meeting or that reunion when you were 23? My dad, God bless him, <clears throat> was a notorious alcoholic. Among a bunch of fantastic traits and abilities that I spare you for the moment. But I was 
23. My father got hit by a bus. Actually, he got his leg run, run over in a bus parking lot, drunk. Bus parking lot gets his leg run over. I get a call from my mom, like, you know, I know you don't really bang with your pops like that, but homeboy's in the hospital, bad situation. I think it should come to Jersey. But I, don't, I dropped everything. I was in the middle of an event, as a matter of fact. I was playing a, a backyard barbecue house party when it happened, and I left. I left a couple of buddies of mine, DJ Mike Nice was there. Uh, Lizelle Williams was there DJing with me. When I left them, I was like, I, I got to split. I got to go to Jersey, family emergency. Right. I get to my mom's crib, and she says, go in my bedroom and grab my purse for me. We'll go to the hospital. I go in the bedroom to grab the purse. Who's sitting on my mom's bed? With a fucking cast on his leg. What? <laughs> my pops. And both of us are like, oh, shit. You know, it was like, what you gonna say, you know? And I guess your first time seeing him in how long? First time physically seeing him in about five, six years. Wow. Um, and sat there and looked at each other crazy for like 15 seconds. <laughs> and he was like, what you gonna do? <laughs> And I was like, it was just like a waterfall. Like I could see myself. I do that. I talk like, I talk with my hands. You know what I'm saying? My mom's don't got none of that in her. So it was like, boom, you know? Oh shit. I walked across the street. I got a 12 pack of, I don't remember if it was Colt 45 or Low and Brow. Let me drink one of them old school ass Billy D. Williams ass beers. <laughs> <laughs> and sat in that bedroom and hashed through every question that I had, every thought that he had, every feeling that he hadn't been able to express his perspective on the situation. Next thing we know, the sun was coming up. Mm. And that was the beginning of one of the best friendships I've ever had. That's dope. That's dope. That reminds me of, um, I think Fonte had a similar situation. He was telling me that, you know, he and his father didn't really have much of a relationship. And then as he got older, after his father had other kids, <laughs> they met and got to work through some of their things, some of their issues um, of his abandonment, of him not being there. Um, how did that make you feel being able to connect with him? Because I remember the first time I heard my father's voice come out of my face. Mm -hmm. You know, that moment <laughs> you realize, wait a minute, uh, that wasn't me. Right. <laughs> right. And you don't want it to be him. Right. Right. <laughs> I right. Really don't right. want it to be him. You know. Um, yeah, man. I mean, you know, it was what I always wanted. I think what all boys that don't have their dad around really want deep down is that opportunity to chop that wood and to have that moment whether it whether that moment results in a great conversation an altercation an altercation that leads to a great conversation some all right conversations with a bunch of altercations until you can talk whatever it is that that breakthrough is Priceless, man. Priceless. Changed everything for me. So did that put him on the path to dealing with his alcoholism or how did that? Uh, well, you know, by the time we talked and became friends, my father had been sick with cancer for mm. a few years leading up to that. Mm. And unfortunately, he was he was on a he was on a, a positive trajectory for about a year and then you know <clears throat> they caught it late to begin with and by the time we started really building building you know that monster was it was on him you know it was 
I heard one of the doctors describe it as as close to metastasized as you could see a man. You know, you think of metastasized cancers, that's normally something that happens in women, mm -hmm. you know, by, by definition. But it had spread across him in such a way that, you know, over the course of that whole five years leading up to his passing in, in 97, yeah, he was just, you know, falling away. So has that, did that experience make you look at your own health? Because that's something else I've talked to men about is connecting with their fathers, help them to understand their physicality. Because you, know, you don't know what, 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 what runs in your family, for example. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. I mean, having been an athlete my whole life, I was pretty well in tune with myself. You know, I played division one ball, played semi-pro basketball, you know, mm -hmm. And on that level, I was already, this is who I am. This is my makeup. This is my consistency. This is how my, my system functions. But meeting my dad, realizing, you know, being, being born ahead of his time in terms of his vision and his talents, Jim Crow, Vietnam, Agent Orange, liquor, women, bad family politics and to still be standing. It's a fucking tough dude, man. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Built to last, right? Not a fair weather tough guy. This guy right. has been beat the fuck up a couple times, more than mm. a couple times, triple digit times, matter of fact. So mm -hmm. what it did make me think of is Being born and when I was born, you know, first generation, truly free black, you know, black folks couldn't vote a year and change before I was born. You know what I mean? So that was just like a ill, like a real personal direct illustration on like as rough as things were growing up, how good I've had it and how just because your body is built for a beating doesn't mean you need to take a beating all the time just because you're built for it. You know, I say that with fighters a lot, you know, a lot of fighters careers end earlier than they should because they're so goddamn tough mm. and they let themselves get touched so much right. that it, it carves years off the, off the time. You know, you can see it in an athletic perspective. It's hard to see that when you, for me, for instance, being on the road and, you know, the whole rock and roll diet, man, you're on the rock and roll fucking diet. You're eating, standing up, you're having a fucking hair of the dog in the morning, you know, a hair of the dog in the afternoon again, just to keep shit bubbly. And then one before you go to the next gig, just to turn the white noise down so you can focus. The next thing you know, you've been slightly intoxicated all day for mm. the last six days of this run. Mm. And because you're not smashed off your head and because you're still able to hold coherent conversations and because you're still present and you can handle your business, you think that's okay. Mm. It's not fucking okay. Mm. It's not sustainable. Okay, how tough you are, what your metabolism is or how, you know, <laughs> what you think you've been through that has made you so valid that you could do this that somebody else never did, you know, in time, it's going to catch you, you know, mm. it always catches up, man. Truth always comes out. There's three sides of every story. There's my side, there's your side, and there's the fucking truth. Truth always shows up. And, in, and with regard to health and I've taken myself through a battery of changes, you know, in, in terms of my health going from playing the highest, level of collegiate and semi-professional sports I could play to being depressed and drinking every fucking day to picking up cigarettes to quitting. Yeah, I've been through the whole run of that mill, you know what I'm saying? And moderation on a fundamental level has always ended up being the best bet because you know, resolutions provide you with too much opportunity to lie to yourself. 
<laughs> That's the January quotes right there. Okay. I mean, how often do we do it, right? Mm. New year, new me. Right. You no. Know, 16 days later, you're doing the same bullshit you were doing before you said that. Wow. You know? So to your point about meeting my father in that relationship and making me look at my health, it made me take a very, very close look at my health. And um, the one thing that I did and have continued to do, thank God, over the last 30 years is to stay active, mm. to get up, stretch, push your body, break mm. a sweat, move mm. with purpose, put yourself mm. physically through something that gets your adrenaline pumping and, and push some more of those toxins out of you and see if you can jump an inch higher today. You know, all the things that went into climbing from freshman ball to JV to varsity, you know, all the same discipline, all that same vocabulary. It made me refocus on that because this was also months, this, this time of meeting my father, I had only been in Philadelphia seven or eight months at that point. So I'm seven or eight months removed from a semi-professional basketball career. I was in a major depression. I was drinking three, four forties a day, picked up cigarettes. I was stressed the fuck out. Put a basketball anywhere near me, I want to vomit. You know, my dream deferred the whole fucking story. I didn't want to come here and take a fucking corporate job. I wanted to play ball. You know what I mean? So I was doing a how, lot. How did, your, how, did, how did your ball career, not to diverge too much, but I'm curious, how did your ball career end or pause? My, my ball career ended for a number of reasons. Number one, you got to keep something in mind. The, the, the deepest guy on the bench in the NBA is 52 times better an athlete than the best athlete you've ever seen. Mm. When you couple that with work ethic mm -hmm. under good coaching, a guy without that athleticism and that natural God-given gift has got to work four times as hard just to keep up pace. I was always a bubble guy, you know? In high school, I played with my back to the basket because I was the tallest guy on the team. But in my heart of hearts, I was a swing man. When I got to college, I had to get a handle so that I could play and ended up playing swing and four because at six foot six, 200 pounds, division one basketball, they're throwing you around like a fucking rag doll in the paint. So, you know, ethic, get to it. Get it done. Figure it out. You want to play? You got to outplay this guy. All of that shit that goes into adding on to your game to make you worthy of playing time, you know, was something that I always had to, to, to revisit. And after my first semi-pro season, it was that reality check, like, you know, if, if I wanted to keep playing basketball, it was going to be another four years or five years before I got to the NBA. This is before the MBDL. This is during CBA, WBO, you know. I played in the, <clears throat> I played for the New Jersey Jammers. It, it, it was, it was, it was a real awakening to get to that level after playing four years of division one ball and run into a guy, you see him play before and you think like, I'm as good an athlete as him. Then you bump into him physically on the court and it, you, <laughs> you feel like you ran into a fucking cement wall, you know, and it flattens you and you roll your ankle, you know, like reality check. Like this is a 25 year old man has been bench pressing your body weight for the better part of the last 15 years. <laughs> Basketball skills and finesse is one thing, but being able to get to the bucket around grown ass men, it's a completely different vocabulary. And I did all right, 
but I had a shoulder injury at the end of the season as well. And I had um, an impingement syndrome in my shoulder. Mm. And that was the real, you know, final nail in the coffin for me in terms of decision-making. And again, with all the surrogate dads that I had around me, all I'm hearing in my ear is, this is why we made you go to Cornell. This is why we told you, you want to get a division one education. You want to play division one basketball. This is why we told you, you can't run and jump for your whole life. You're going to have to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. And that's how I ended up in Philadelphia. So seven months after that was when I had this meeting with my dad in the midst of a huge depression huge depression probably still coming out of some of it especially after this last year (laughs) if you didn't have depression before or if you had modest forms of it it just amplified everything at least introduce you to it yep at minimum yep so how have you managed this last year with your son now we're going on a year now i remember starting this having these conversations it was <laughs> about april like may or march or april 2020 here we are in january almost february 2020 we're no it feels like we're no closer to dealing with this thing well, <laughs> when we started. the only thing we can deal with is what the government presents us with and what the statistics and the statistics and data tell us about what the outside world is going to be like going forward. And none of us could have expected this. Nobody expected any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a father that's in a blended family, you know, I'm already dealing with the commuter vocabulary. I'm already dealing with shared time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this quarantine definitely made it a little bit more difficult for us to move around, particularly as time went on. You know, early on, everybody's like, oh, this is gonna pass, this is gonna pass. I got a little bit of savings. I got a little bit of petty cash around for just such an occasion. You know, we're gonna be all right. And then those reserves start getting thin and the income that's coming in ain't what it was when you were in the old world. At least for some of us creatives, particularly as independents that aren't in the bubble, you know, we're not secured by, you know, label advance money or publishing deals or recording deals where we have, you know, living advances and and systems around us that'll keep us afloat. And it's really, you know, when you're when you got to kill your own meat, it's a it's it's a hell of a place to be to be quarantined and stuck and unable to get to your your family or your occupation. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been a it's been a lot, man. It's been a lot to learn. But you know, praise God, I'm blessed enough to be able to say that I have a co-parent. I don't have a baby mama. So the flexibility and the understanding and being able to shift gears and make decisions that are good for everybody you know, and not to making decisions that are based on spite or any negative negativity based on our splitting up or anything like that. I don't have any of that in my life at all. Praise God. So I've also bypassed a lot of the stress that can come mm-hmm. with being in this situation. Um, they live in Miami. Um, she got married and they, they moved there and he's in sixth grade, he's in seventh grade now. For the entire sixth grade, I was in Miami seven to 10 days a month mm-hmm. or he was here. Mm-hmm. Then he was with me the entire summer and he's been here at least a week out of the month, every month since uh, online schooling started. So. Mm-hmm. In one sense, our routine is the same. We still got to fly to see each other and get that time in. But uh, now, because I can't, 
really afford to go down there and get an Airbnb and a car rental and groceries for a week the way I would normally, we bring him here and he just comes home. And it's a, it's a rhythm and it's consistent. And beyond that, we're on the jack every day, you know? It's a bottomless pit of connection. <laughs> we ain't going nowhere. That's the one blessing of technology, as much struggle as we've had today. <laughs> that that FaceTime is, is a lifesaver. Man. I have a, a weekly Zoom um, meeting with friends just to have human interaction. Right. You know, some folks, so many of my friends are isolated, living alone. And it's like, yo, I'm going crazy in here. So just having these visuals means the world to them. Um, I was looking at your Instagram and and peeped a couple of things. One, um, your son plays volleyball. He got some of that. Yes. Athleticism. Yes. From dad. Yes. And mom. You know, his mom, mom? Okay. mom was a hell of an athlete. Uh, okay. Yeah, he's playing volleyball. He's been playing volleyball since the middle of sixth grade. Um, we have sent him to every basketball camp under the sun for his whole life and out of the clear blue sky he's like i want to i think i want to try out for volleyball mm. and he tried out and he's kind of like a like a drunk fawn you know <laughs> like, hands are the size of mine his shoes are almost the size of mine so he's you know you know like you see certain puppies when they're running and they're butt- <laughs> to the side like they're running to the side because their back legs are stronger than the front legs. Like my son is still in that phase. Okay. Thing because he doesn't have to take a lot of contact and there's a hell of a lot of hand-eye coordination and balance and balancing the field and playing your position. It's all, it's all relevant. The most important thing is that he's subjecting himself to coaching and he's subjecting himself to something that he thinks he wants to do. So, yeah, he's he's in it, and uh, he got pulled up to the traveling team a couple weeks ago. Uh, they brought him in on the development team at first just to get him to understand the game. He just knew he wanted to play, but he didn't understand the rules and regulations. So played development for four months or so, four or five months, and he's been getting pulled up to the traveling team probably once or twice a month for the last few months now. So you can see his confidence growing. Can actually nice. kind of see like a, a little bit of a bounce in his walk now. You know, it's not so. It's still cute. You know, he's a he's an innocent thirteen. He's not a, a tough guy thirteen. But you can see him starting to square up and round off, and his balance is coming around in a, in an interesting way. So it's been beautiful to watch. That's a great age. My daughter's twelve, and you know that middle school era is just you know they're they're shaping their identities and seeing what they're into and testing different things to see what fits their personalities i love it i love it what's his what's his music taste like man kamal's music taste is pretty varied um i mean obviously it goes without saying that any top 100 or pop rap act right now is totally on the radar uh-huh. uh, he's a he's a big k-pop fan uh any rappers whose names start out with Lil, he on the team. Um, he's in here with me listening to everything under the sun. Nice. His mom's has a very, very wide musical palette. So, you know, more often than not, I find him rocking to contemporary songs that him and his friends are into. But at the same time, when we're chilling, he'll be singing Stevie Wonder lyrics or you know, asking me questions about people on album covers that he th- he thinks that he's seen them before, mm. stuff like that. You know, so he's he's a curious dude, man. He's a, he's a real curious dude, and I've tried my best to just, you know, you know how it is, man. You don't want to be a pageant parent, you know. Yeah. I got part of you is like basketball. I know he's DJing. I know. Go, 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 go. <laughs> I'm like. Not really, fam. It's not his chamber. He ain't on that. Not no DJ aspirations yet. I wouldn't say no DJ aspirations. Uh, he's completely rhythmic 
everything he does is physical. If you've seen any of my videos with him or yeah. photos with him, he's a, he's got a natural bounce to him that's just undeniable. And he, you know, he's making beats on Garage Band, and when he's with me, he'll put a record on the turntable and play the record front to back and check liner notes and stuff like that. But uh, standing over my shoulder, asking me about technique and wanting to know craft. He's always shy with me when I put it in front of him. But he still touches the toolbox. So I can't really be mad. Maybe he'll come to it in his own time. If he does, by the time he does, he's going to have his own vocabulary. And all I'm going to be doing is giving him mechanics. Because mm. the musical palette is growing by the second. He's got, he's got the human Pandora here. The, 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 <laughs> as you, that's the he ain't got no problems getting to know me. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned album covers, and it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask. Your flyers for Little Ricky's Rib Shack features a little kid with the hat. Yes. Who's was that you? That is me. That is you, little Rich. But how old were you in that picture? Two years old in that picture. Two. Nineteen seventy-one. Wow. What was life? What do you remember about? life for that kid and his surrogate with the, with the surrogate fathers and mom where this was this was in jersey still yeah well, i was in jersey we were in howell new jersey at that point in my life um man life was being surrounded by family you know my i have an older sister that's 18 years older than me um my sister and her first husband lived with us till i was 11. My nephew was born a year after me on the same exact day. Wow. Uh, my mother's family is enormous. We were always doing something gathered at my grandparents' house or gathered at somebody's house or at my grandfather's church. And, um, you know, it was the quintessential story of black folks that had migrated from the South that were in the North in the seventies, experiencing newfound freedom, you know, just a year and change before I was born, they could not vote, you know, black men were being lynched in Ocean County, New Jersey in 1969, the year I was born, you know, so there's a feeling of excitedness. There's a feeling of opportunity, a feeling of positivity that's floating through the black community at that time that is undeniable, despite all of our, our problems, despite, you know, colonialism and everything that comes with that. It was a, it was a time of optimism and a time to be thankful that we, don't, we ain't dealing with what they once dealt with. And I say they because I, I, didn't, I didn't live under Jim Crow. You know, we romanticize about what we would or wouldn't have done were we there. Mm -hmm. Present a lot of bravado and a lot of theory, but I don't know what Jim Crow is. I know what Jim Crow behavior is. Mm. I know that shit inside out. Mm. But, you know, living under law like that, mm. you know, my people was a happy, God-fearing people. Got problems like any other people's had their problems, but I remember sometimes not having a lot of food, sometimes swimming in food, and sometimes having heat on in the winter, and other times having to sleep in long johns and a pair of pants, you know? But finance was never a an indicator of happiness for my family. So that time of my life, my family was extremely sharp. I mean, I was raised with my mother's side of my family. Um, but that unit was together, as, as together as you could want a family to be. So I was really blessed to grow up in that environment. How many, what's your relationship between your elders and your son, how many of them is he able to have uh, 
kind of, I don't know how many of them are still with us or what's his relationship like with, with them and how important is it to keep that continuity with that lineage, him being aware of that. Lamar has a fantastic relationship with his grandmother. He has a fantastic relationship with his aunt, Benita, my sister, um, with his cousins, Tony, uh, my nephew, uh, my niece, Regina, God bless the dead. Um, they had a beautiful relationship. Um, my cousin Agnes's kid, Heaven, is close to, to Kamal's age and they have a relationship. Um, Admiral and Ozo, he has very healthy, open-minded relationships with my family. Obviously, he could know more people and he will know more people, but, you know, the world is a little different now than it was when we were growing up, you know, at least in the sense of the elders in my family that were in charge of organizing family reunions and things like that. They're no longer here. The, the tradition wasn't kept up. Um, by the time people in my generation and family were old enough, it was kind of water under the bridge to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's there's like I said, you know, every every family has its its issues and its pitfalls, but Kamal has fantastic relationships with this side of his family. And uh he's starting to pick up on nuances of who he is uh mm. ethnically. Yeah, how have you been able to have that conversation with him, especially in this political climate, election year, you know, I know my kids have had tons of questions or just, I found my, my son vents more. Like he doesn't have questions as much as he comes to me with like, dad, I've been watching this. My son's 18. He just turned 18. My daughter's 12. He just, he's in his first year of college. And he's just like, how can people be this way, dad? How can da, 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 da? He comes to me with a lot more venting than actual questions. What's, what's Kamal like? Kamal is the same, but in a 13-year-old, you know, tempered down to, to 13 years old. And, you know, Kamal's an interesting dude in that sense because I never, I never Google gaga my son. Mm -hmm. Always talk to him at this pace. Always talk to him with this type of energy. I've never, you know, I mean, okay, the dude still thinks that Santa Claus is a fat black dude that comes down a chimney we ain't never had no fucking chimney okay <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of affairs of culture right his mom and i have always kept it a beam with him always from the time he could talk he knew that his mom is filipina and part polish and his dad is black and part cherokee so he is made up of four very, very distinct ethnicities. And obviously his Filipino culture and his black culture has to lead the way because your eyes are too almond to pass for white. Your lips and nose is shaped too black to pass for a Filipino, mm. you got straight hair, but you black as pitch when you look down your lineage and you're gonna have to contend with all of that. Mm. So we've always kept it clean with him. This is what's happening. This is a derived, these are the type of words that people would say if they wanna say something about negative about your Asian heritage. These are the negative words that may come your way when people want to say something about your black heritage. Here's another batch of negative words that might come your way if people just want to talk about the fact that you're mixed. But our job is to equip you with the tools to allow you to defend yourself in a discourse about who you are. You don't have to be everybody's reasonable Asian friend. You don't have to be everybody's reasonable black friend. You don't have to do nothing but be present. And there are things that are gonna come across your plate as life goes on that are gonna be negative. 
purely because of the color of your skin or purely because of the nature of your, your eyes or people are going to say you're not white enough. There's people are going to say you're not black enough. You're going to get arguments from the whole spectrum of the universe. But if you can accept the fact that this is going to be a fight, then you're not afraid of fighting. You know that you have to fight. So you prepare. And if you're prepared, win, lose, or draw, fear is not a dynamic in the conversation. And we just tried to encourage him to not be afraid to speak his piece. Know the line to when you're stepping over the line and being disrespectful, but you have a forum here and you can speak your mind and ask the type of questions that you wanna ask so that you feel like you're a part of the conversation rather than being dictated to. So that's put him in this state of mind of understanding his ethnicity. And every once in a while, put a little 10 page Martin Luther King pamphlet in front of him. Put a little 10 page Malcolm X pamphlet in front of him. Tell him who Sojourner Truth is. Explain to him that Kamala Harris is built of similar fabric as him. And look at what she's doing. All these things, the achievement, showing her achievement is what will make him trickle backwards to see what she did along the way. You know, so it's, we're, we're learning every day how to curb our enthusiasm and magnify our language about culture and where you stand in the world as a man of color. Mm. Man, that's my, I guess my, my last question is, have you played your own music or poetry for him? And what was his response to it? First time my son heard me rhyme or speak on a record, he was flabbergasted. He didn't know what to do with it. I think he was like, I think it was in first grade when he really realized like, wait a minute, that's your voice. You know, <laughs> one of those moments. And for him, it's a cool point, you know? He's just like, yeah, man, my dad, he does this cool music stuff. You know, my dad is like, he, he writes songs and he writes for magazines and he even got me in some books. You know, it, it's, it's that type of, 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 uh, of interest. So it's, it's, it's really interesting dealing with him around the craft, you know? He loves the music, but he's such a perfectionist that he doesn't want to make mistakes in front of anyone. Mm. That's what I've come to believe. <laughs> about Kamal is some of his shyness is, I don't want anybody to see me fall on my face the first couple of times I try this. I want them to see me when I'm nice with it. So that's that millennial kind of, they want to microwave the process and get to the finished product thing. Yeah, I think, I feel like social media has made them that way kind of. Because- social media, the way of the world, mm -hmm. the Kardashians, <laughs> you know? You don't, you, you don't have a, you can't really make mistakes in public, you know, so whatever, once it's out there, it's out there. And it's so hard to course correct once something's out there. You're not allowed to grow. You're not allowed to evolve. So I understand why he, he, he could feel some apprehension in that way. I see it in my own kids. You know, they're, they're very closed off until they're ready for you to see something. Both of my kids are artistic. They love to draw, but they don't like you to see stuff until it's ready for them to show you. They don't want to see, show you works in progress, you know? Yeah, and for us, like from kindergarten up until probably two years ago, that was like overbearing, you know? It was like 10 different reveals a week, you know? <laughs> but each reveal just ends up in the pile of reveals, you know, because he's going through the process on his own mm. and going through the ins and outs and the ups and downs and the learning on his own to show how much he knows and to show how good he is. But there's still all these dynamics, all the ghost notes of process are mm. missing. So that's when we started dealing with art classes and Kamal's very artistic as well. I think that may end up being his calling. Mm -hmm. And that's when we were like, okay, 
he goes to basketball camp and it's something to do and he gets happy and he buzzes around, but he ain't focused. Same thing for soccer camp. He ain't focused. He's just out, glad to be outside. He's like a little puppy. Just glad to be outside running with some other little puppies, you know? But with the art, the art thing became a whole different thing. Hmm. You know, this guy's got a website, you know, selling merch. Really? What's his website? We'll, we'll plug it for him. What's the website? His website is knmarts.com. All right. Y'all heard that. Go check it out. Yeah, man. He's doing his thing. And um, I don't know how I got off on that particular tangent, but, you know, the, the, the process conversation and getting kids to appreciate putting a seed in the ground, knowing that you're not going to see anything come out of the ground for a week, but still watering it while the stem isn't showing itself. They don't understand that growth period from seed to sprout. You know what I'm saying? And that's a, you know, better than me. You know, you got kids older than mine, so I'm not telling you nothing you don't know. (laughs) Telling that, that tank, you know, that space between the seed and the top of the soil, that's a hard sell. Yeah. For kids these days. We've, we've done it kind of um, in a fun way. We've actually d- kept the notches on the, on the wall of their growth. Mm-hmm. Every year, my, my wife has been very, you know, consistent with it. So we have the notches of them at 10 years old, 11 oh, years yeah, old. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, got them boys up. And they don't, they don't see how much they've grown until they look at the wall and say, like, wait a minute, I used to be this short just last year? Like, yeah. That's why I, t- I tease my daughter every time I see her in the morning. Like, did you grow in your sleep? And she just giggles. And I'm like, yo, go look at the wall. You probably did. Very probably. <laughs> the way they go. The way they go. So just, just instilling in them that, you know, growth is something that happens over time. And even with my son, like he initially had an interest in culinary and we allowed him to pursue that and sent him to, to, to a camp. And then he was like, you know what? This might not be for me. And now he's all in on graphic design, right? And just letting them know that it's okay to change your mind. Right. You know, that that process is is part of learning. It's part yeah. of growing. Try you it. Know? You won't know if you like it until you try it. Exactly. With the food, that's the thing with my daughter. She he, she has like five things she eats. Mm-hmm. And we're constantly trying to get her to expand her palate. Yeah, like, yes. try it. Pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Pepperoni pizza. Pizza <laughs> with uh, what are they doing now? What are they, pineapples? <laughs> wow! See, I, I'm a pineapple on pizza dude. I know that'll get me killed, but you know, I, I, I have no shame. <laughs> but yeah, she she's she's cheeseburger with nothing on it is her go-to food. Fried mm-hmm. rice, chicken. That's it. Well, she is allergic to fish in her in her defense. That's part of her her hesitancy. She's like, oh, because she had fish as a kid and made her break out bad. But it's like trying to get her to try something with plate, another flavor is like, oh. Yeah. Our son, he'll try sushi, he'll try whatever. At least once. He may not like it, but he'll at least try it. You know. Yeah, Kamal, pizza and fries, man. <laughs> He's got a nice palate. I mean, his mom's an amazing cook. Mm-hmm. You know, my girl's an amazing cook, but pizza and fries, man. That's all <laughs> 13 bullshit. It's pure bullshit. <laughs> it's the only bullshit part of this age. Pizza and fries. Going to a buffet, spending $20, and all they're getting is pizza. Like, dude. <laughs> yeah, and like nuked pizza at that. Like, pizza sitting in a heat lamp. This is buffet <laughs> pizza. Like, come on, son. <laughs> you rather eat buffet pizza than get some of the steak and rice and vegetables in your life? You wild. <laughs> wild. <laughs> uh, well, Rich, man, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you go. This has been so much fun, man. And I appreciate you for taking the time. I know that you're gonna be running around on Twitch yes, to, at some point this week, yes, entertaining us and helping us stay sane in this goddamn quarantine. <laughs> Man, laughing to keep from crying, brother. For real, for real. So salute to you and your brethren and the originals for for helping us all 
you know, stay sane and all this. Um, do you have anything coming up artistically that you want to give us a sneak peek on? Uh, you can just tune in twitch.tv slash Rich Medina Music. Um, we're broadcasting at least three days a week, if not five or six. Um, you can check richmedina.com. Check the events page to find out what's going on. You can uh, get yourself some merch. And uh, yeah, man, we just in the woodshed as usual, Jerry. You know how we get it. We just in the woodshed, man. Chopping wood, chopping wood, chopping wood, chopping wood. And thank you, brother. Thank you for this forum. Uh, to get to talk like this is is huge. Oh, wait. Speaking of fatherhood, I almost left out my other son. Hey. This is Doofy. What's up, Dookie? <laughs> How old is Dookie? Dookie is one year old. Dookie turned Ooh. in October. Okay. Well, welcome. I, you are officially, I think, the first first pet on the podcast. Nice. <laughs> Baby's coming in all shapes and forms, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, man. But yeah, so thank you very much, and yo. Um, I sent a note to D Nice, so please, if you speak to him, I'd love to have him on the show. Oh, awesome, I will. Remind, tell, ask him to please check his email. I sent him one maybe a week or two ago. <laughs> All right. No problem, brother. All right, brother. I'll see you on the internet. Yes, sir. Bless up. If you're enjoying Fathers Who Bother, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Fathers Who Bother and Twitter at Fathers Who Be. Thanks.